Hi, I'm Howard Parker, and welcome to Bluegrass Stories. In 1971, young filmmaker Albert Ide traveled down to film what arguably was to become the most famous bluegrass festival at all time, Carlton Haney's 1971 festival in Camp Springs, North Carolina. That film became named Bluegrass Country Soul, and it featured artists of the day like Earl Scruggs, Ralph Stanley, Chubby Wise, Jimmy Martin, Mac Wiseman, Del McCurry, J.D. Crow, the Osborne Brothers, Tony Rice, and a band from Japan, Bluegrass 45. Nearly 50 years later, a member of Bluegrass 45, Akira Utsuka, sits down again with Albert Ide and discusses the remastering of the original film and a new documentary called The Making of Bluegrass Country Soul. Here's Akira Utsuka chatting with Albert Ide. First thing, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, it's Ide, I-H-D-E, and it's, it sounds like it's I apostrophe D. I see. Where did you grow up? In Nutley, New Jersey. It's about 30 minutes west of New York City. Oh, and when did you move to D.C.? When I was 18, I went down to study at the Catholic University of America. I see. And uh, as a freshman, I guess I was 18, yeah. Mm-hmm. You filmed the movie in 71. What were you doing in D.C.? I had just finished working um, on a... Uh, a new professional theater company called the St. Albans Repertory Theater, where we had done uh, plays and also some mixed media stuff where I had film and slides and shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was looking to do something else, and I was hired by a company to write a screenplay about a country music singer. And uh, that company was called Vaudio Incorporated. And uh, at that point, I hired Bob Leonard to help me produced the film once we had the script and this company was going to sell stock on the New York Stock Exchange and with that money we were going to produce this movie and it was going to be called The Duke of Marmalade. So we were preparing to make this movie and uh, the company was having trouble selling stock and in the end it turned out the whole thing fell apart. They couldn't raise any money and we ended up with a screenplay uh, and suddenly Bob and I were out of work. And that's when we went to Burryville because we had been scouting locations out there and met John Miller. And John Miller said, you know, I think you ought to meet my partner, Carlton Haney. So he gave us passes to the Burryville 4th of July Festival. So even though we were out of work, we had no idea what we were doing. We went to see the Bluegrass Festival. That was our first Bluegrass Festival. You have heard of Bluegrass before that? I'd heard of Earl Scruggs. Um, and probably the Osborne brothers. Mm-hmm. That may have been about it. So what did you think of Bearville? Well, I, I just loved the location, uh, and that, that's why when we, we toured the location, we thought this would be a great scene in our film. Uh, so we added a scene of a bluegrass festival in our screenplay. Oh, that's so we were, gonna, we were gonna make a film there, one way or the other. Uh, and then the money fell through Uh, So we went down there, and as soon as the music started from the stage, I think all of us were absolutely enthralled by it. Um, And uh, the audience obviously loved it, and uh, we loved it. And uh, we got to see uh, the Lily Brothers and the Osbournes and the New Deal String Band and Sam Bush and 
you know, this is great. We, you know, we definitely want to keep this in the film. And our character, who is this country singer, was going to somehow show up in Maryville, meet Carlton Haney, and get put on the stage and become a big star. That was going to be the screenplay. Uh, never happened. Well, the end result was uh, Bob Leonard and I then had to figure out what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we were both looking for work. And uh, so we had the screenplay, and Michael Christopher, who later became a very well-known dramatist, uh, playwright, and won a Pulitzer Prize in 1976, uh, Michael was working with me on the screenplay. And uh, he came to us, he came w with us to Berryville. Uh, and so when we had this new scene in the script, we said, well, let's send this out to somebody who might give us some advice on it. And the one guy I knew in town who could do that was somebody who knew my work in theater at St. Albans. And his name was Stan Rosenzweig. And Stan was a well-known businessman in DC, uh, very well respected in the community. I sent it to Stan uh, along with a note saying, Bob Leonard and I are trying to start our own company, uh, and if you can give us any advice on this script, we'd be gratefully appreciated. And so we sent it off to him, and we had no idea what was going to happen next. And then one day I got a, film, a phone call from Stan's office saying Stan wanted to talk to us. We went into the office and sat down with him, and the first thing Stan said was, uh, well, I'm not very excited about your story in the screenplay. And we thought, oh, that's the end of that. He said, but there's a scene at a bluegrass festival. He says, why don't you film that? And we said, we didn't think we'd find money anywhere for a documentary about bluegrass music. And he said, how much do you need? And Bob Leonard and I went to the next room with our little calculator, came back within 15 minutes and told him, we could probably do it for about one third of what the original budget was gonna be. And he said, okay, if you can get Carlton Haney to sign a letter of agreement saying he'll allow you to film his bluegrass festival, he says, I'll find you the money. So you knew Camp Springs was coming up? We kind of knew it was coming up, but we didn't know exactly. Uh, so the very first thing I did was, call, I called Carlton and told him, and he said, well, come on down. So Bob Leonard and I hopped on a plane the next day, flew to Greensboro. Uh, Fred Bartenstein met us at the airport, showed us Camp Springs, and we sat down with Carlton. And we, you know, we had no idea. I said, Carlton, do you think we could get these guys to sign a release to be in this film? Because there's no money, but you know, there might be publicity for everybody. And, hmm. and, and Carlton said, well, if you give 10% of the profits to help us build a Bluegrass Hall of Fame and Museum here. I'm sure everybody will sign on to that. So Bob and I thought, we don't think Stan will have any problem with that. So uh, we, we signed the letter. When was this? This was, um, I can give you the exact date, but it was August 18th or 19th or something like that, or 21st. So it basically, only had about yeah, two weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks from the time Carlton signed that letter till we had to show up at Camp Springs and shoot it. So uh, we had no idea whether we could do it or not. But again, we're young, you know, young guys. We, at that point, we thought we could do anything. So um, 
And we got back to, to Stan and showed him the letter. And he said, okay. He said, I'll put together the legal papers and we're gonna form a limited partnership. Uh, and um, he's got his investors, they'll be the general partner. And he says, you and Bob Leonard will be the, the other, the limited partner. And by that time, we uh, had also put Rob Henniger on board with us. Uh, he was a friend that uh, Bob Leonard had worked with at the Washington Theater Club. So the three of us formed the Washington Film Group. And you had to recruit crews. Uh, yeah. I mean, we had not ever done anything quite like this before. And uh, I talked to a couple of the cameramen that I knew in town in D.C., and neither of them were interested in doing a documentary about bluegrass. Uh, until finally one guy, Fritz Rowland, who worked at Rodell Studios over in Georgetown, told me, he said, the guy you need to call is Bob Kaler, and he's up in New York. Of course, picked up the phone, called Bob, and the next day I was on the train to go up to see him. I knew very little about Bob, but I sat down with him in Greenwich Village, and we started talking about movies, and and I said, you know, let's do it. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And uh, we made a deal. And I think one of the key things was he asked me, who's doing the sound? And I said, well, John Dildine is somebody I've worked with before. He says, oh, John's great. So he knew John. That's so I thought, oh, that's good. So then the, my next call on my way to the train station was John Dildine because I had to get him on board mm -hmm. and called him. And he said, oh, I love bluegrass. So uh, we had the two key people. And then Bob Leonard and Bob Henniger found the other people on the crew at the same time. They were digging around town and they knew people through theater. So it was a bunch of theater guys basically coming together to make a bluegrass film, which is kind of strange in itself, but mm -hmm. that's how it happened. That's neat. So when, you, when did you get to Camp Springs? Well, the crew got down there uh, Wednesday before the uh, it started. And they had Wednesday and Thursday to basically hang all the lights and get the power in there. Uh, there wasn't enough electricity uh, run to that, to that stage to light something like 40,000 you know, watts of, uh, of lamps. And they were able to get the, the North Carolina Power Company to run a separate line from the street. Um, and I was amazed that they got that done, but they did. And they were able to hang that whole, what we call a false proscenium out in front to hang the lights on. Uh, and they had all that done by Thursday night. That's cool. And uh, it was again, again theater people. Uh, Billy Eggleston was the head grip, head electrician. And I had worked with Billy at Arena Stage in DC. And, uh, he, and he'd worked with Bob Leonard and Bob Henniger before. So everybody kind of knew what the deal was and mm -hmm. we knew we had to get this done. And, You got it done. Mm -hmm. So once you got it all set up there, and how did you deal with all the artists? Were they okay signing the release form? So yeah, I think the um, uh, I think everybody was fine with it. We had a pretty standard release that wasn't too complicated, um, and. Um, The only two questions were, we weren't sure whether Roy Acuff was going to sign. He was, because he wasn't around and he didn't come in until late Saturday night. Um, and then Earl Scruggs, uh, uh, his wife, um, uh, Louise. Louise. 
Louis Scroggs said, uh, we're not going to sign until we see the footage. Oh, boy. And we thought, okay, well, we kind of want Earl in the film. And so we thought, well, all right, we'll show her the footage. So they performed and we filmed them. Uh, and, of course, we have Earl at the end. But uh, those were the only two that, I think that was the only two. I, you know, I have questions now about why we didn't have certain people in the film. And um, a lot of that has just disappeared in the fog of time. Um, but I think we were expecting to use just about everybody that was there. But we had a limited amount of film. And so we, we knew we wanted certain groups for sure. And I think by the time we got those groups lined up, we figured we had run out of film. Um, I mean, we knew we wanted the country gentlemen and Ralph Stanley and the Osbournes, and um, we we loved the Bluegrass 45 that we had seen in Berryville, and the New Deal String Band, and the Sam Bush. So there was groups we knew from Berryville, and so because of that, we were ready to shoot these groups, uh, and then that was kind of like it. There's there's just not enough time in an hour and a half film Thank to put everybody. Back then, you know, it was not a hard drive. It was a hard film that you had to use. Like when you filmed Blue's 45, we knew which songs you were going right. to tape right. to save the film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we couldn't film every set of everybody. Uh, we basically told everybody... Uh, if, if there was one song, like with Ralph Stanley, we, we, I knew I wanted a Man of Constant Sorrow. I just knew that song. I loved that song. And so I said, you know, put that song at the end of your set, and we'll be ready to film it when you get to the end of your set. So we were able to do it that way. But um, uh, no, we couldn't. We, now, of course, I wish we could have filmed all the sets and then had all this film left over. But at the time, the most expensive part of our production was the cost of the film stock and then the processing and the work printing of all that, which again, nowadays, you don't have to pay for any of that. Right. But back then, it was the most expensive. It's more expensive than paying our salaries for our crew mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and gasoline for the, you know, the truck and everything. But uh, it was a big problem. Any other thing that you regret that you didn't get? Well, again, I th if we had had you know another five or ten thousand uh, dollars, it would have made all the difference in the world. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, we felt we were fortunate just to get enough money to make the film. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, and again, not knowing uh, exactly uh, what we were going to get back from this, um, as far as the quality of the of the work and the quality of the sound. Uh, we, you know, we were hoping that it would all come out um, and we hired the best people for it, but we didn't know. Any special like thing that you are really, really proud of? In the film? In the film? Um, well, just the fact that uh, everybody on the crew, uh, both our, our profes professional guys and we had some volunteers, everybody worked their heart out. Uh, there wasn't, you know, a laggard in the bunch. And it was hot and humid, and uh, I don't think anybody got enough sleep, uh, or and you know for the entire period. But there was no complaints from anybody. That's great. Uh, and uh, and er, just 
everything was done exactly on time. Everybody was professional. Um, no, I couldn't have asked for a better crew. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have any problem with fans, musicians, Carlton's group? No. Uh, as Fr Fred Bartenstein was a fantastic help from the very beginning. And uh, I had a lot of questions about these different groups and about the, this you know, selection of songs. You know, what was Jimmy Martin's biggest hit? You know, which one should I pick? Uh, and then I would buy these LPs. And so before we went down there, I was listening to bluegrass music over, you know, over and over again. So I had a pretty good idea of the different kinds of songs. But like with The Country Gentleman, there were so many different songs I wanted to use. Um, but we couldn't. I wanted to have, you know, uh, taking uh, Mary home. But there's no time. We couldn't, there's no way we could put that in. Right. Um, and there's so many other songs like that that I wish we'd have been able to use. So now we're hoping we can do some of that with these additional CDs in our box set where we can release some of those recordings from that festival uh, that I had wished I could have put into the original film. And now there will be in our box set. That would be cool. Uh, tell me about Doug, McC Doug McCash. Doug, um, Doug was there at the festival, but I didn't meet him then. Um, it was only after we finally got the film processed, and we had to take it to New York to get processed. It took about a week to do the processing and work printing. When we came back to D.C., Bob Henniker and Bob Leonard and I tried to watch some of the film for the first time um, uh, on a uh, upright moviola, which is an old-style movie editing machine. And we were doing this at the Rodell Studios in Georgetown, and it took us about an hour just to get one reel of film up and synchronized. And so we knew we didn't know what we were doing at all. And we got a knock on the door of the studio. This is on a weekend when the whole studio was shut. And we opened the door, and there was Joel Jacobson and Doug McCash. Mm -hmm. And Joel said, I understand you're looking for an editor. And I said, come on in. <laughs> and, uh, and they proceeded to come in and tell us about bluegrass. And Joel showed me a short film he had done in which he had synchronized uh, all of these people around Washington, D.C. singing blue suede shoes. And uh, he'd cut from one person to the other and with Carl Perkins singing uh, the, the song. And the, the synchronization was perfect. And I thought, okay, you got it. You know, we, mm -hmm. we found our editor. And so he and uh, Joel and Doug worked with me for about six months to put that whole film together. And Doug is the one who plays Madeline at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, we, we had to do some additional shooting at the studio at Rodell. Uh, we had a couple of clips of Carlton Haney that we needed to put in. And uh, we sat Doug down under the lights and said, play Sally Gooden. And he said, okay. And he sat there and played Sally Gooden. And that's what we used for the opening. And the... Uh, uh, still pictures of Ben Lynn is so great, you know, maybe because I'm a, I'm a Ben Lynn player, but I just love that. Well, that was Joel. Uh, so Joel has a credit as being the editor and the title design. Joel took all those close-ups uh, and uh, put that all together. So he did a great job on that. That's neat. You said it took six months to edit it? Yeah, um, again, it's not like editing nowadays that everybody can do on their computer. Uh, we had to sit down. Uh, fortunately, Joel had 
what we call a two-headed Steenbeck. So he was able to put up two, fo- two pictures at a time from Bob Kaler's camera and from my camera, uh, which we shot all of the different groups. So he would watch, for instance, in uh, the Bluegrass 45 when you're doing Mocking Banjo, and you have a close-up of Josh talking on the mic. I could, I was on the bass player, uh, so he could cut from Josh to the bass player, mm-hmm. right? And and you could see right on the two two screens where each one was, and they were all in synchronization. So you would cut back and forth, but just doing one song would take several days I see. from start to finish. You only had two cameras running? We had two sound cameras running. That was it. Um, Bob Kaler was right up on the stage, uh, you know, right up on top of people, and I was just off the uh, right side of the stage in the front, in front of the audience, where we had roped off a whole section of the ground, and people mm-hmm. were great. They all stayed back behind the rope. Uh, and gave us plenty of room to run back and forth and, and, and all because we didn't even have headsets between us. So we were synchronizing everything between the sound booth, Bob Kaler on stage, and me with hand signals <laughs> uh, and trying our best to do it that way. I was looking at the pictures from uh, Bearville the same year and I see like five, six, seven kids sitting on the stage yeah, it didn't happen at the Camp Springs, I guess. Yeah, it didn't happen, and it kind of sometimes looks strange that you don't have people right up in front. Um, but um, I hope it doesn't look too strange. But yeah, we had we were able to keep people back enough so that Bob had plenty of room to move, and I could move my tripod around without having to worry about you know bumping into people. And I think again about proud moments was that hiring Bob Kaler, uh, who is really good with a handheld camera and being able to move in and out, and having the guts to stand up on the stage in front of the lead musician or singer in a piece and blocking that person's, blocking the audience's view of that person through the entire song. Um, I think a lot of cameramen would say, oh no, we're gonna stay down and away Right? We don't want to block the audience's view. But what Bob realized was we're here to make a movie. The audience is out there and they're going to see the rest of the show, but for this song, they're not going to see everything because I'm making a movie. And so Bob got right up there in front of everybody and got some of these great close shots. Now, a lot of cameramen wouldn't do that. It uh, was a scary moment from the other side. I bet you it was. I bet you it was. Sure. And especially some of the fiddle players in the fiddle sequence. When Bob was so close to, um, to Tater Tate, uh, it looked as if the head of his fiddle was going to hit the lens at any moment. Um, so, yeah. but uh, And with uh, Bobby Osborne singing Ruby. I mean, Bobby, though, Bobby was a pro. And so was Sonny. They, they knew this camera wasn't going to hit them, uh, and but they just played to the camera. I mean, that scene that Bobby's singing Ruby, you know, you can see his tongue. Yeah. And it's so cool. Yeah. And, and I mean, the sweat's coming, and yes. so what? I mean, it was a hot summer day, and 
but that's what so that's why I was so lucky meeting Bob and then also knowing that you know Bob's heart was in making the best film that we could make uh, no matter you know maybe he got in everybody's way for a bit um, and because he was able to do that I was able to shoot from the side and have other cutaways so if he was shooting Sonny Osborne on the on the banjo I was following Bobby so then when Joel started editing it he could cut from Sonny to Bobby with keeping the sound continuous uh, and you didn't have the pans in between so it's That's it gets complicated but it it worked um, yes. with the bare minimum of, of film now we had another camera a third camera was out shooting what we call the MOS shots the silent footage uh, and Bobby Decker took the Airflex out and shot all around the festival for the entire weekend, getting all kinds of shots of people in the camping and people in the audience and uh, hither and yon. I see. But audio was captured at sound booth. John hooked up his his tape deck, his Niagara, his Niagara, Niagara. tape deck, right into the PA system. Mm -hmm. But when our songs came on, that we were going to record, John took over the mixing uh, of the whole thing and so um, uh, and mixed them to our specs and not to the PA specs. Oh, the, I see. So he was able to adjust that and he had worked out with Ken Alexander. Ken understood what was going on. Ken, Ken, was, the Ken sound, was the sound man. Ken was the sound engineer. It was all of his equipment. But uh, John knew exactly how to do all this stuff because he was really big on a lot of this kind of music. Mm. Okay. After you finished editing, in 1972, you had a premiere at the Virginia Theater in Alexandria. And it was like July 3rd or something? Uh, July 6th. It was after 6th. the 4th of July, yeah. So, but it was before Berryville weekend. I think Berryville, wasn't Berryville the 4th of July? Yes, I thought yeah. we went to the premiere first and then Berryville, but I could be wrong. I wish we could have filmed at Berryville, but Berryville had its own problems. Uh, as you say, the stage was so small. Right. Uh, and he, Bob could not have shot that stage the same way he shot it at, at Camp Springs. It was high off the ground. Mm -hmm. So we would have had to build a, a, a scaffolding or something out there mm -hmm. on it, and it really would have messed up things, I think. It, it because the audience side went down. Yeah. Camp Springs was, audience side went up, yeah. so it was easier. Yeah. I see. That's neat. And Premiere, mm -hmm. you had bands. I remember hearing Negress Revival there for the first time starting with great balls of fire just blew my mind and my band Lucas 45 played who else played the country gentleman played gentleman did okay. um and i have to tell you i was so busy doing all kinds of things that night um my mother came down from new jersey to see the premiere cool <laughs> so i was i had i think i had to go to the train station pick her up I may have just gotten there when the country gentlemen were on. Uh, I for, it, it's a blur to me that whole evening. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'm, watching a film premiere is very much like watching a stage play that you've directed. 
And on, in a stage play, you're watching and you're hoping the actors remember all their lines. You hope the scenery doesn't fall over, the prop doesn't break. <laughs> uh, and in the film, there's not much you can do. I mean, it's there. Right. But you're hoping that the audience is with it. Right. You know, that they're in it too. And so I was pacing up and down at the back of the theater for the entire night. I was how, really a nervous how, wreck. How was the response of the audience? Oh, well, the response, the, the applause was great at, at the end. And Was it just at the end or like... Well, all through. There was stuff yeah, all the way through. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I, it's a blur to me. Uh, but we had all kinds of great uh, comments afterwards. The Washington Post gave it a wonderful review, oh, and um, which uh, we've been using ever since, uh, uh, because we never really got the film reviewed. Right? It never really played anywhere except where we distributed it ourselves. So it never had national distribution, uh, and it never really had the marketing that we wanted to put into it. Uh, the thing we hadn't talked about was, you know, Stan Rosenzweig, who put the money up, he and I tried our damnedest to get a, a distributor for the film. We went to New York, we met with David Brown, who was part of Zanuck Brown, who made Jaws and all kinds of films. Uh, and, uh, you know, and here, this, Stan had an in with him, but David Brown said, Bluegrass? What was Bluegrass? Earl Scruggs? Uh, Bonnie and Clyde, I know, but what? They didn't know. We went out to Hollywood. We, we flew out to LA. We stayed in Beverly Hills, went to <laughs> Warner Brothers, and met the, the president of Warner Brothers. Now, you don't just get a meeting with the president of Warner Brothers. And we went through the film, we had pictures and stuff, and the guy said, oh, we just had a, a, a concert film, it was a, the Medicine Bowl Caravan or something, and he said, it died, it died on us. We don't, you know, we're not gonna go near that kind of thing again. And we tried to explain, no, this is different. This is Americana music. It's for the whole family. It's, it's, it's fun. People leave the theater smiling. They enjoy it. No, not interested. Uh, we even went to American International, which was a low-budget film company. And I was talking to them when they started explaining the cost of distributing film that Stan and I kind of talked to each other afterwards and said, I think we should try and distribute this ourselves. Mm -hmm. because at least we'll get our money back. And, um, and I said, well, that's fair enough. So we did, and we found uh, a very great uh, woman businessman named Dar Steppe, who had just started her own sub-distribution company over in Marlow Heights. Mm. And, um, and she knew me, and she knew Bluegrass. She was from West Virginia. And she took it on and booked all the dates in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, Pennsylvania, out into Ohio. We finally, we found a list of all the places it played recently. And it played all around the place. I ended up taking the prints down to Atlanta and showing it to uh, a whole theater full of uh, theater owners down there uh, and getting it booked in uh, drive-ins all around the place. Oh, so it, it played in bits and pieces of places, um, but, uh, and it even played at the Orson Wells up in Cambridge. But um, it never played New York, it never played Los Angeles. You know, it, it just was not able to get get going. And at the time, people in the bluegrass industry were telling me, bluegrass industry, bluegrass community were telling me, bluegrass is non-commercial country. And we were finding out the hard way. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it just didn't have that kind of following back in 71, 72. Right. I did see it in Wheaton in 73. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Now, tell me about the 2006 Time Life oh, yeah. release DVD. Well, Ellen and I had started our own theater company in Santa Barbara, and we had a website up, and Joe Sasfi somehow or other found my name through that website. I guess he was Googling, and my name came up as the producing director of this theater company. So I get a phone call one day, and this guy says, are you the Albert I that made Bluegrass Country's all? And I said, yes, I am. And he said, uh, do you have a, a copy of that that we can see? Um, okay, I'm sorry. Who was this again? Joe Sasfi is his name. And he, he was a, uh, a um, contractor with Time Life Music. Okay. And he, had, he put together projects for them. And, uh, but first he wanted to see the film. And he, hadn't seen, he just heard about it. We ended up sending him a copy of it and he said, okay, um, we would like to pay to have that restored and made into a, a DVD and release it. And, um, uh, and it would be a five year contract. And, and I thought, you know, Time Life Music finally had enough money to market this thing. And I thought, it's finally gonna get the national distribution that it never had before. And so uh, we hired Rob Henninger, who was one of the partners in the Washington Film Group. He now had his own production company in in, in, uh, Washington, D.C. And his main office was in in Arlington. So Ellen and I flew to D.C. and I worked with Rob for three or four days to go through the film scene by scene, correcting the color, adjusting the, the lighting and stuff, and putting the DVD together. And Fred Bartenstein was able to put together a commentary track uh, from Ohio, where he was now living. And uh, I think it was 2006, they, uh, 2007, they released it. And uh, it apparently did very, very well. Uh, from what we have heard, it was one of the biggest uh, selling Bluegrass DVDs of all time. We still keep hearing from people about it. Mm-hmm. We played, but people don't remember that, you know, 20 years later. When Time Life DVD came out, people saw it and they kind of, oh yeah, I remember these guys. So it was very beneficial for us. Oh, sure. US 45. Yeah. It's amazing what people forget. Yes. Um, and uh, I think Fred was makes a comment in the commentary track. Uh, he had watched the film so often, and then it had so much time had passed that when he saw it again, and he started the commentary track and talking about how uh, the Osborne brothers sang Listening to the Rain during the rainstorm. And I had to point out to Fred, no, that didn't happen that way. Fred was there. Fred was the director of the festival, and he didn't remember that the Osbournes weren't on stage when that rainstorm hit. Uh, and when the rainstorm hit, we had to turn everything off. You had to turn all the lights off. We couldn't shoot anything, really, except what we had. We were able to shoot on battery-operated cameras. So uh, we only put that music, the music and that those shots together later in the editing. So it's funny how people remember things, or sure they remember things, and, and don't. And I think that's true of the film with a lot of the people in it. Um, 
that, you know, maybe back in 71, you weren't so interested in new grass at that time. Well, since then, new grass has become so popular and so big, it's great to go back now and look at where it got started. Mm-hmm. And I've even told Fred, I said, you know, we should call this time, this was when new grass was new. And uh, when people were really trying to try new things with it, uh, and uh, yeah, I think the Bluegrass 45 played really well to the audience. They knew how to put on a show. And that broke through a lot of barriers with people who maybe had never heard Bluegrass before. And they suddenly they're hearing some classical, you know, some Mozart. Uh, and they're saying, oh, wait a minute, this is interesting. You know, this is not just what we would consider hillbilly music. Uh, and with some folks who didn't really understand bluegrass. And they start saying, no, there's much more to it than that. Uh, Are you saying bluegrass 45 started the new grass? <laughs> it was part of it. <laughs> it was. You guys were. Well, Sam Bush said uh, he saw us doing the take five. Mm-hmm. He said, hey, you guys freaked me out, man. Yeah. Yeah. So. Now, let's go to 2019 about your box set. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you start talking about doing this box set? I think the, the instigation for that was getting a, uh, another phone call from the Bluegrass Hall of Fame and Museum. And at the time, they were calling it the International right. Bluegrass Hall of Fame. And they asked me if I had any pictures or flyers or posters from the film, because they were doing this exhibit. And I kind of thought, yeah, sure, I'm glad you called. I have tons of stuff. And I started realizing that, first of all, the the DVD that Time Life had put together is sold out. And uh, you can now only get it on Amazon for $130 or something crazy like that. Uh, and so there's no way you could even buy it. Uh, it was out of print. And I thought, you know, I don't want to just, this film shouldn't die that way. We should, it should be available. And I thought, you know, we should give a copy of this film to the museum. Since it's going to be a brand new museum, it was going to be opening last October. And so I wrote to them and said, hey, uh, I would like to donate a, a digital copy of this film to the archive. And uh, at that point, I was back in touch with Rob Henniger, and he was saying that he had done archival copies of films. And basically what it means is you make this hard drive uh, of the film that can be shown in a theater, the way movies are being shown now in theaters. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with an archival copy, every five years or so, that hard drive is updated to compensate for all the new things in, in digital you know, filmmaking. So I said, that's great, we'll do an archival copy. And so I told the Bluegrass Museum and uh, Chris Jocelyn said, that's great, how lovely. And um, we thought, um, and I thought, you know, and there was, and at the same time, uh, around the same time, Bob Kaler, who became a really good friend of mine, uh, and and, and I'd worked with on several other films. uh, And he was such a great filmmaker. Uh, he'd been out in L.A., he'd made some other films on his own, which were very well received. 
And but he was diagnosed with uh, Alzheimer's, and uh, Ellen and I went down and saw him, had lunch with him, and I realized after he died, um, I thought, you know, this guy really never got the credit that he deserves for all the work he did, and I wanted people to get the credit on the film that they, I don't think they'd really been given before. So I thought, let's do another restoration of the film. I wanted to dedicate to Bob Kaler and to Bobby Decker, the other cameraman who also had since died, and, uh, and to all the musicians who passed away, uh, who had been there, uh, and make that kind of the, the legacy edition for all of these people who put this together and do it upright. And I talked to Rob Henniger about it. He said, great idea, let's do it. I talked to Fred, Fred said, absolutely. He says, I'm in. And because we started figuring out how much it was gonna cost to do it up well, uh, and we had no idea whether it would even sell to make up, you know, even to break even. So at the t around the same time, I started thinking, we, one of the things I wanted to also do is uh, like a making of documentary, to interview those people who were there and hear their experiences of that festival and of the making of that film. And I started thinking about putting people on camera and we even put up a budget of, what if we had to, to go to Colorado and to Nashville and to all these places and interview all these guys? Well, the budget was $100,000 or something like that. And I thought, you know, there's no way we could do that. And uh, so we started pairing it back and trying to figure out what we could do. And at that point, we were gonna put a, a small booklet in a box set, and Rob Henniger said, well, you know, I, I'd seen this great coffee table book, uh, hardcover with all these photographs, and it really looked great. And I kind of thought, you know, that's really what we should do. We should do a book uh, all about that festival and, uh, and all these different stories that came together at that festival. Carlton Haney's story, which, uh, he gave a wonderful interview with Fred that was in the Mule Skinner News in Carlton's own words, kind of lays it all out. The stories of all these different musicians who came from all different parts of the country and from overseas and came to this festival at a time when Bluegrass was just breaking out uh, of the original mogul that Bill Monroe had put it in uh, because of his specific uh, way of looking at things and his his ideas. But as with all music, music is constantly evolving and changing based on the musicians and the audience and the times. Uh, and it was about to change and it was changing at that point. Uh, and so we wanted to show the importance of that festival. So that was not just a movie anymore. It was not just a documentary about the movie. It was a book about the movie. And then again, as we I said before, there was so much music that I wish we'd have been able to put in it. Uh, like the Bluegrass 45 playing Take Five, which I love, um, but it just wouldn't have fit at that time. It would have taken up a, a big hunk of that time in the film. Um, so, but now an audio version of that on a CD, I think it's gonna mean so much to so many people that that could have been done in 1971 by a Japanese group in America. Um, at a time when bluegrass was changing. So I think the box set suddenly takes on a whole new meaning uh, and it really does what we had originally hoped to do with the film. And that was, I had hoped to recreate the feeling I got going to see my first bluegrass festival in Berryville. And if I could recreate that for the general movie audience, 
for people who didn't know anything about bluegrass. Maybe I could increase the amount of audiences for bluegrass and also give people a good time because I think people would really love this music if they heard it. And by heard it, I mean actually listen to it. Right. Um, and, you know, gave it a little bit of attention. Um, because with all new music, it takes a while for new music to kind of get into our heads and in through our ears and saying, ah, I do like that. It's different, and I like it. Um, and you might not know why, but you, know, but you do have to listen. And I thought maybe if we put it all together in a box, that that might be one way of doing that. And I really appreciate what you do. Um, so when is it coming out? Well, uh, we are uh, working on it mm -hmm. uh, as we speak. And uh, if we keep to our production dates, uh, which includes you know production of the book and production of the DVD and the CDs, uh, our goal is to have it all ready by September 1st, 2019. And um, so far it looks like that's possible. That's great. Uh, and the only thing that we are still hoping on is that our crowdfunding uh, continues to grow because uh, the, financially, it's going to, it's going to, you know, it's it's really important that he gets paid for, right. uh, and uh, that's the the unknown mm -hmm. at the moment. The schedule and everything is all set, um, and we're getting great cooperation from everybody we talk to. Tell me, uh, how to uh, where I can find the fundraiser website? The fundraising, well, right now on our website. Uh, you'll find that the crowdfunding is listed as different ways of purchasing uh, a box set. And there are different levels uh, that you can uh, purchase this, uh, this, make a giving level. And it can be found at www. Well, it's uh, bluegrasscountrysoul, one word, dot com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Akira. Thanks so much, Akira and Albert. More information about the Bluegrass Country Soul Project can be found on the web at bluegrasscountrysoul.com. That's one word, bluegrasscountrysoul.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud and can be found on the web at bluegrassstories.com katydaily.com. It can be found on Facebook at Bluegrass Stories, on iTunes and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for further podcasts from Bluegrass Stories. Bluegrass Stories.